Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. Economists often examine the cause-effect relationship between public policy and how people in the world respond in their decision-making. Casey Mulligan has worked hard to model how workers have responded to major policy shifts in the past decade, specifically those intended to address the financial crisis, unemployment, and healthcare access. His findings, as he discusses with Kevin Murphy, reveal a Milton Friedman adage written in New Data. One of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than the results. Casey, welcome. Great to have you here today and uh, talk a little bit about your research and your approach to economics. Um, so why don't you characterize for our audience a little bit the kind of things you've been working on recently and, and you know, what, what, what you think lessons you can tell people based on uh, your work, and then we'll get into a little discussion about it. You know, I, I try to draw on what, what Gary did, Milton did, a lot of uh, people at Chicago in developing a supply and demand framework for looking at what happens in various markets. Um, particularly, I focused on labor market in a kind of aggregate way, and try to use those tools for the current events. Um, supply and demand haven't really changed, but events have changed around that. Um, and we had a, a big recession. That was a big change. Try to think of that for, through the lens of supply and demand related tools. That's interesting because, I mean, a lot of people, when they think about supply and demand, they, they think about some horrible microeconomics class they had in, as an undergraduate or something. and bunch of curves shifting around on a blackboard and sounds to me like what you mean by supply and demand though isn't really so much about the blackboard it's really more about an approach to looking at real world phenomena and so I think that's what I think of as your research is doing and but it's also isn't that unusual for a macroeconomist I, I think a lot of people think of you as a macroeconomist to think about the world in terms of supply and demand as opposed to I don't know all the other things that macroeconomists think about. Well, they have, they're a varied group, macroeconomists, but a number of them have different labels for supply and demand, but it's still supply and demand in the end of the day. They might call it productivity, um, and margin rate of substitution or some words like that. They might embed it in a larger, more complicated framework, but um, there's an awful lot of supply and demand behind there is how I think about it. And so I try to draw the lessons that came from Milton and Gary. I mean, they were experts on, on operating that system. We can, we can use that expertise even on new events. Okay, so you, you mentioned the recession. And you know the, when you talk about, quote, the recession, I think you're talking about the most recent sort of financial crisis-related recession, whatever people want to call it, the 2008 uh, time period and really the aftermath of that as well. And how do you, you know, how, people say, well, geez, isn't this all about, well, there was this housing bubble and the housing bubble collapsed and it's all about financial markets, right? Isn't, isn't this a really a financial market story? 
what is all this labor market stuff you're talking about? Is, is that, why is that part of the story? Well, sometimes it's defined to be the story of recession is defined to be when the labor market contracts, regardless of what's happening to housing. Um, and so I view the more the questions are, are they connected, how are they connected? Certainly they're connected, but how? Uh, one thing we saw is that the, the lenders who were supposedly suffering during the crisis, they had their profits recover in a matter of year, two years, something like that. Labor market didn't. Um, if it was just the the financial market were the dog and the labor market were the tail, you know, we we're left with the mystery of why the labor market dog hasn't labor market tail hasn't followed the dog where it's gone. Um, that makes me think there's more going on in addition to financial gyrations that affected the labor okay, market. Okay, so when you're thinking about the this last period we've gone through, and let's say we're talking 2007 to 2016, so it's hard to think of it that way. It's like almost a decade. We're really talking about the most recent decade. You're, what you're saying is there's a lot of important things going on in the labor market. You're not saying that it still was, it, we could still call it the financial crisis in some sense. Maybe that was the thing that got the ball rolling or got things started. So you're not debating that per se, but you're saying we got to look at the labor market as well to understand what's happened over this period of time. Yeah. I think um, there were activities in the labor market itself that both made the recession deeper than it had to be given what, what happened to housing, and then made the tail just rip off the dog, and so that the labor market stayed depressed much longer than the banking sector did. So this is, this is related to all the discussion we hear these days about slow recovery and particularly why the labor market or employment or you know, incomes for the average working person haven't kept up and with the economy post 2007 or so. Yes. Okay. So when you talk about labor market, you know, I know as an economist, I know what that means, but for most people, when you say a labor market and you linked it up earlier to supply and demand, what are the key forces that are at work in a labor market? Uh, is it the availability of jobs, that there just aren't enough jobs out there? How, would, how do you bring supply and demand to the labor market? And how do, you, you know, how do you think about the labor market from a supply and demand perspective? Well, there's certainly there are buyers and sellers. Uh, buyers are the employers. Right. So we've got employers who are potential employers, whatever you want to call it, people looking for people to do work. Okay, that's called the demand side of the labor market, okay. And then there are people who might like to work if it gave them enough income. Okay, so let me parse that out a little bit. So we have the workers, or the people who potentially would be the workers, people looking for jobs. And your key element of what you just said is provided there's enough reward to working. So uh, knowing a little bit about your research, you, you've emphasized a lot about how the rewards to work have changed over time. And I believe you, you, you had a, a book called The Redistribution Recession, I think was the title. Is that your, right. your uh, title of your book? And so related to that, what was the basic thesis of that, of that book? Well, the cornerstone of the book was really to, to go through 
our federal policies and to some degree our state government policies and look at how they changed their the way they treated employers, the way they treated employees, the way they treated people who were out of work. They changed on how they all did that. Um, and that, Focused on this time period in particular. Yes. So we're going to say, if you look at the world taking, let's say, base year of 2005 or something, where do you want to start? Where do you think is a good place to say, this is before all the... 2007 would be fine. I mean, okay. 2006 and 2005 weren't that different from 2007. So 2007, the pre-recession world we lived in. So we're here in 2007. There's then a financial crisis that hits. And Casey's story is not diverging from the common story at this point, I don't think, or maybe it is. What hits in 2007, 2008 is what people commonly would call the financial crisis. Is that Still, that was front page news for that's sure. That's the front page news. Is there that is happened. there a back page news at that point in time? You had uh, some important laws already changing, like in the summer of two thousand eight. That's before Lehman failed. Um, there was a major increase in the assistance to people who were uh, laid off. Okay, so this was extending unemployment, expanding unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, at that point in time. Right. Going up to, you could get it for a full year, which by historical standards is quite a long time. Um, and already in 2008, summer, you, you could get that assistance. Okay. Now that was a response to the rise in unemployment and the financial crisis that it hit already or started to hit the economy already. Yeah. So A little bit had happened, although on the scale of what was about to happen, not much had happened by the summer of 2008. I, I agree. But people saw the financial crisis coming or saw it hitting. I get coming is maybe giving them too much credit. They saw the financial crisis beginning to really hit, take place. They saw people getting laid off, the unemployment rates going up. So one of the policy responses to a rising unemployment rate was to expand unemployment insurance benefits. Yes. Okay. So that's that is an initial one of these changes you're going to think about here, okay? And, but, okay, then what's, what's okay, now we're, story's rolling forward. What happens now? Also about the same time, this played out at a state level, so I can't name a specific date because different states at a different time. The food stamp program changed in pretty important ways in 2007 and in 2008, before Lehman. Um, they used to check whether not only was your income low at the moment that you applied, but also whether you were poor. I mean, whether you had any assets, you even owned your own car and those sort of things. They stopped doing that. Um, they just asked, is your income low at the moment? They also made it easier to, to get the food stamps. You get that, Now you get a debit card. I say food stamps. They're not stamps anymore. They used to be stamps. And when you went in the store, the guy behind you in line could see that you were buying your food with something special. Now it's just a... Just a debit card. It's very unobtrusive. So if there was a stigma associated with you using food stamps, that was reduced at the time by the introduction of the card that yeah. allowed it, make it, made it both easier and maybe less stigma associated with using food stamps. Made food stamps program more attractive. Did we see an uptake in the usage of the food stamp program at that time? 
because of those changes? Do you, you have evidence yeah. of that? Well, that, that's not my research, but people that have been doing the poverty researchers have been looking at that. And they, because the states went at different times, they could see some changes in, in usage and behavior among that population, which tends to be an unmarried population, but uh, that unmarried population tends to react to that when their state reacted. So in other words, this is again batting. So we're thinking about like as an economist, if I make the food stamp program more attractive, more people will take up the food stamp program. We not just usually rely on economic theory, we also like to test it with data. So people actually went out and looked at, well, Arkansas did it in one point in time and Tennessee did it at a different point in time. And do I see a correspondence there in terms of the take up rates? And the evidence seems to say that yes, that what you'd expect to happen did happen. Okay. And also the agriculture department and every report they put out year after year, they kept saying, we've improved this program. We made it more accessible. And that's one reason why it's grown. Okay, so we have a, we had an expanding unemployment insurance program at the time, expanding food stamp program at the time. Okay, now we're rolling forward in time. What what other things came in? So now as you get into that 2008 mid late 2008, housing prices were had already been coming down, but now they're really coming down, and there were a lot of middle class people who were starting to see that, geez, I know I owe more on my house than it's worth. And they're underwater. Underwater, they they called it. Okay. And they there's a question of what what does a family do? You know, do they, do they mail in their keys? Do they try to renegotiate a deal? Um, and at the, at the time, the federal government under the Bush administration it decided, you know, we're going to start renegotiating home loans with people, even middle class people. Um, on the basis of their income. So if you lost your job, you were gonna get a better renegotiation than if you had kept your job. Um, and so that was a change that was kind of coming directly from the financial crisis. Okay, but uh, let, me, let me make sure I understand what you're emphasizing versus, so we have loan renegotiation. In and of itself, loan renegotiation doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the labor market, it's just, it's just, you know, it's about the housing market. It's about renegotiating. My house is worth less. You don't want me to move out because that's going to make the house worth even less. There should be room there between the bank and the, and the, and the homeowner for a deal. Right. But what you're emphasizing is that there's a linkage now to the labor market because policy says if you're employed it's harder to get that renegotiation or we won't push for that renegotiation the same way we will if you're unemployed. There's that employment contingency attached to it. And then people recognize that if I start a new job before I get this house renegotiated, I'm going to get a worse deal. I Um, see. And you had that factor. And it's from policy, but it also might have happened some of that naturally. Maybe a natural tendency for bankers to say, I'm going to squeeze harder to people who are employed than the people who aren't. Collect where you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but this actually got institutionalized in policy yes. above and beyond what it would normally be, even absent that kind of policy change. Okay. So that would be another aspect of what you what you saw happening during this time. Now, just so we can follow the trail here, we're looking at the labor market. We're asking, well, geez what changes are happening in the labor market. And all these three so far we've gone through are all going in the same direction. They're saying, well, 
We're going to expand unemployment insurance benefits. We're going to expand food stamp eligibility. We're going to give you a further benefit of making it easier to renegotiate your mortgage. So if you're thinking about a balance between, God, what do I get if I'm working versus what do I get if I'm not working, we're seem to be piling more and more in the benefits of not working relative to working. And that, right. Is that uh, fair? Yeah. For the vast majority of people work still pay more than not work, but the gap shrank. Um, which you sacrifice by not working in terms of your living standard had gotten fairly small by the end of 2008. So the, these policies were designed to mitigate the downside of having lost your job. I don't think we would debate that. That was their intention. That sure. was their intention. And Probably I, their effect. And, and, and what you're saying is, well, if that's your intention and you're successful at achieving your intention, it's going to have an effect, which means the incentive to get out of that state is going to be diminished. Right. It's, but that's an unavoidable consequence of making that state more attractive to some extent. You know, there's a story... Uh, uh, a captain in the Coast Guard contacted me and said, Casey, I, I see what you're saying about the labor market. Let me tell you how it works in my business, where she's in the business and her people in the business of saving people who are drowning. People don't want to drown. Now, drowning is not fun. I, I haven't done it yet, but I bet it's not fun. Um, but she said, hey, when, when the Coast Guard's there close, people take more risks. They swim without their life jacket in New England because there's a Coast Guard within eight miles. And she said, guess what? In Alaska, where the nearest Coast Guard would be 100 and some miles, people take care of themselves. Yeah. They have the radio on them. They have the life jackets. Um, and so, you know, if, if incentives change how people take risks of actually killing themselves, you would think that it would also change their take risks that they would have involving keeping their job or maintaining a good position at work or whatever. Okay. So, I mean, I think... I, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you, you're, you're saying, look, you have these policies. They're, they're, they're designed to mitigate the downside of being unemployed or losing your job or whatever. We just have to recognize that they do exactly that. They mitigate the downside of that. And as the cold-hearted economist always does, points out, well, there's going to be consequences of doing that, which is in the case of the Coast Guard, if you tell me I'm going to pluck you out of the water if you get in trouble, well, people are going to get in more trouble. They got in more trouble. And, and you're saying the labor market works a lot the same way. And let me be clear, that lady in the Coast Guard wasn't uh, advocating getting rid of the Coast Guard. She loved the Coast Guard, but she understands that, that their good work was having effects on how people take care of themselves. Yeah, so you, in order to say that you want to think through the impact of these types of policies, you don't have to be taking a, a, a moral position or a policy position one side or the other. You really just have to be saying, you know, this is a natural consequence of these kinds of policies. They're going to have yes. some effects, and therefore you shouldn't be surprised when they have the effects you think they're going to have. Right. Okay. So... All right, so we have a couple of these. Now, are these, you know, are there, are there other ones you'd want to highlight that were, were important? Well, then early 2009 was this important addition that really put us to levels of assistance that we were quite beyond what we'd seen before. Um, you had the stimulus, or the 
American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Okay. That was passed, um, I believe it was in March, or the last couple of days of February of 2009. Um, further added to unemployment assistance, gave people a bonus. One of the things that was really amazed me, uh, if you got laid off from your job, you could keep your health insurance from the job you just lost, and the federal government would pay for two-thirds of it. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, so if I, if I go then take a job, I either have to pay for it myself or at least my employer would have to pay for what would otherwise be coming from the government. Right. If you take a new job after being on that program, the federal assistance for your health insurance stopped. This was before the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare would come into swing. So uh, that's how it worked. A lot of employers- now, You've talked about this and done research about this. And in fact, this has now become part of the literature that one of the people, one of the reasons people used to want to get a job is because that was how you got health insurance. Once I go to a world where I'm going to get health insurance, maybe not free, but two thirds subsidized, even if I don't have a job, that incentive to go get a job is diminished. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Although the way you said it puts a little more judgment into it than I want. Um, you said your incentive to go get a job. There's also the incentive on the employer side to fire you or not, and, and to try to keep you on board. Um, a lot of employers had programs that say, look, when the bad day comes, we got to lay some of you off, we'll help you out with your health insurance. Um, and that's a big expense that these employers had, paying for health insurance for employees who don't work there anymore and don't produce yeah. anything. And the stimulus made that expense almost disappear because now you could fire somebody and not pay for their health insurance because the federal government would pay for it. Um, so you save more money when you fired them. So, the, but the best time isn't to fire that the people. same? Isn't that the same story? It's yeah. just who's paying the bill. I mean, I agree. You're saving somebody two thirds of the health insurance yeah. cost that would happen when you're unemployed. Um, and that, and you make a good point that these incentives don't all just operate on workers. They offer also operate on employers. Anything else that happened on the employer side that made it less attractive to hire? Workers. Well, they're also competing against these unemployment benefits. I mean, we could talk about, well, we have unemployment benefits so people don't rush back to work, but you could just blame it on the employers and say, well, they didn't up their ante to compete with what um, the government was now offering that was better. Okay. Uh, and they didn't up their ante. Um, now, it, would it, you it, have expected them to up their no, ante? No, you don't. It, it, it's, this is a tax on the market and it's going to affect what happens in the market. and. Supply and demand tools, the way I learned, they don't teach blame. You can't say, oh, the buyer, it's the buyer's fault, or oh, it's the seller's fault. It's the two of them come to a different deal because you've interfered with their deals. Well, I, so I think what you're, I, I think one takeaway from what you're saying is look, you have policies, you have to recognize, like, you know, we know that if you go out and tax cigarettes, there'll be less cigarette smoking. We go out and we tax whatever activity we want to tax, there'll be less of it. And you're saying if you go out and make it so you're effectively taxing work, whether you're taxing the employers for hiring people or you're taxing people by taking away benefits if they go to work, you're going to have an effect in that market just like you will in other markets. Yes, you will. And that's one of the lessons of supply and demand is that it's one of them cold, hard facts, kind of like being in the water without a life jacket. You, you will drown if you left out there long enough. And supply and demand is going to do what it's going to do. 
in, in the labor market just like it does elsewhere. That's the approach I learned here at Chicago. Okay, but it's, uh, it's an approach near and dear to my heart. But, but I think it's important to realize that this isn't a statement about whether things are good or bad. It's just a consequence of policy. You had a policy, maybe it was for good reasons, wanted to cushion the fall that people had, the consequence of that is going to affect behavior in lots of ways. And in particular, if you make the consequences of not working much smaller than they used to be, that will reduce the amount that people work. Now, it's been often claimed, even by economists, that, well, people don't respond that much, that, you know, we call it elasticities are low, that, that you know, people respond to incentives, but do they really matter that much? Is this really enough? to explain why we've had such sluggish growth in employment since 2007. Are these, are these effects you're talking about big enough and important enough to actually explain the lagging behavior we've seen in the labor market? Most of them, you pick them out in isolation, they're not. Like the debit card for food stamps. They detected an effect of that, but it was hard to detect, it's kind of small. But that's just one of a laundry list of things you do, and if you do 20 things, you're gonna have 20 times the effect of a doing one thing, small can turn into big when you multiply it by, by 20. And that's kind of what we're gonna happen. We had a whole host of programs, each of which had a small effect and added up to something we can notice. And then you're saying, but it, and they're all going in the same direction. So yeah. it's not like I got 16 of them moving us one way and 14 moving the other way. So on net, I got two. You're saying they're pretty much all pushing us in that one direction, whether that's it's right. food stamps or unemployment insurance or loan modification or health insurance subsidies, any other ones you would want to note that you'd think are important? Um, the unemployment checks got bigger. Not only could you get them for more weeks, but you could get uh, a larger check. Supplemental benefits of some type, bigger benefits. Yeah, they called it a federal additional compensation. It was like, they called it a bonus. I mean, it's what the politicians called it when they talked to the people. But I see. So there wasn't a corresponding bonus for working. There right. was a correspondent, there was a bonus. Now, so if you add all these things together, how big of a difference did it make? I mean, did it, I mean, is it, why, why would it, these things all add up to something that's significant? You know, I found that um, that's the main contribution I tried to make in the book. So let's add them up. So we do have arithmetic. We can add these things. These, it's not like adding apples to oranges. They, they have this kind of economic, common economic thread to them. Let's add them up. Um, and I found, of course, it depends on the type of person you talk about, single versus married, uh, high income versus low income. But on average, for your average worker, um, it's about like raising the payroll tax by eight percentage points. Okay, um, so, on a, so what, would, what would we be talking about? Like, take a worker who was costing the employer $20 an hour, $20 an hour. In 2007, how much of that would have been going to the employee as their net compensation? You know, so maybe he would, he, would, he would keep in $12 an hour in the old days, and then he's up to, uh, down to keeping only $10 an hour. Okay. Something so pretty close to that sort of number. So instead of, now, if you looked at the tax records, you wouldn't see 
that that person was necessarily paying, in one case, $8 of every $20 earned in taxes or paying $10 in 2014 of every $20 they were earning, right? Right, actually the IRS forms changed very little during, during this period. Um, it wasn't the, our interaction with the IRS that, that made the treasury profit when they work and lose when they didn't work. It's the interaction with these other agencies, the unemployment agencies, um, other parts of the Department of Treasury that were dealing with the health insurance, um, the Department of Agriculture dealing with food stamps. So this wasn't necessarily revenues collected by the government. So it wasn't like the government raised tax rates and therefore they were collecting all this extra money. In many ways, it's gonna operate in the reverse direction. They're gonna increase the amount they're paying to people who aren't working, which is actually gonna reduce the government coffers but at the same time, reduce the net benefit or the change you get from working. Is that now, almost all of it showed up as extra spending on the budget? So this is an example where extra spending. Now, you often hear in people talking about macroeconomics, they say, well, boy, when the government spends more, that's going to cause the economy to grow. In fact, that was the whole stimulus story, right? Yeah, that if the sure. government went out and spent a bunch more money, that's gonna cause the economy to get bigger. But you're saying if the government goes out and says, I'm gonna pay a bunch of money to people for not working, that's probably not gonna have that same expansionary effect on the economy. Is that? Yeah, there's a bit of malpractice there, I'm afraid. I have to report <laughs> that there have been studies when the government spends on the military, which means that they pay a business to make an to work to make an airplane or they pay a man to work and with a tank or whatever he does in the army or the navy or the air force yeah. that you got more employment and output when you paid people to to work on these military projects um, i think those studies are more or less accurate but that's not the spending that was in the stimulus the stimulus was paying people not to work and so you shouldn't expect when you turn the type of spending around 180 degrees did you get the same impact but that that was sort of how it was represented but that but to me goes back to the first question i asked because this is distinctly what i would think of as a microeconomic approach relative to not all macroeconomics but a lot of macroeconomic approaches because in a lot of macroeconomic approaches people talk about government spending and they don't really talk about what they're spending it on they just say I got this thing called G, it's government spending. And when the government spends more money, that has these effects. As if it didn't matter what they spent it on. They could be spending it on tanks, they could be spending on unemployment benefits, they could be spending it anywhere. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, if I'm a micro, if I think about this like economics, supply and demand, makes a big difference how you spend it and what you're spending it on. Well, that. I agree, it totally makes a difference, and I agree you gotta look at that. Macro had already been making that distinction, but they call it the difference between purchases and transfers. Okay. That, that's always been a distinction in my career in macro, but somehow they lost track of that distinction. Um, and they started using spending synonymous with both of them. And the models that we're trained with and the microeconomic training we got both say that they're very, very different. Um, and somehow that, that got lost. But it's it's not just what you're spending it on. It's the incentives associated with 
That's true. Those spendings, right? That's the other big difference. It's not just this check is getting deposited over here and that check's getting deposited over there. In the one case, I'm saying, hey, I'll give you some money if you build me a tank. The other says, I'll give you some money if you- Don't build me a tank. Don't, if you, <laughs> if do you're, anything else. If, you, if you're doing something where you're not employed and you're, I'll pay for some of your health insurance. Right. But I won't give you that money if you are working. Right. And I think your research and your, the thesis that you put forward in your book is really that, that distinction, that, that how the money was spent had significant effects in terms of the aftermath of the recession. So you, it wasn't the shock that started this process wasn't so much due to these types. It was more how we treated the patient once they were sick that I think you're pointing out was important. Yes. And so if we hadn't done these policies, where do you think we'd be at today? Is there a ballpark estimate of how much more we would have grown or how much better, how much more output would be there? How much employment, extra employment there would be? Is there some- Measured by employment or even unemployment, recession would have been about half as deep. It would be more like other recessions. Um, labor market side of it, the finance side would be different because it was different. Um, so, so you're saying if I measured it from where I was in 2007 to the bottom of the recession, it would have been about half as deep. The bottom would have been half Would as the deep. bottom have happened sooner or would it have been just as the bottom taken just as long? Any, any clue there? Would have been a shorter recession, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, that's not so critical. It's more the magnitude. No doubt it would have been shorter. Uh, there's a whole other set of policies that came at the back of this train that made sure that the labor market stayed stayed low for a long, maybe forever. So let me try to tell the story. So you had, we were cruising along, maybe cruising is not the right term, but we, we were moving along somehow in 2007. We have a financial crisis that hits. Natural, what's going to happen is the economy is going to go down. Employment's going to go down because the labor market is tied to the rest of the economy. And when the economy slows, the labor market is probably one of the major things in the economy affected. So that we're not surprised by that. Even the policies, uh, alternative policies wouldn't have prevented that from happening. You're saying, but then we instituted a bunch of policies that made that fall deeper than it otherwise would have been. Yes. Okay. But that's only part of the story because now we're, now what, what we'll call it, 2009, 2010, whatever, we're further below trend in terms of the economic performance than we would have been absent these policies, according to your work. Right. Now, another thing people have pointed out is that, well, God, we had this huge fall, but not only do we have this huge fall, we haven't snapped back the way we usually expect us to snap back after a recession. And the policies we've talked about so far, now it sounds like even more policies that follow on behind that have limited that snapback. Is that what you're saying? That the, we haven't bounced back as much as we might have otherwise? Exactly. That, that the stimulus was, came in in 2009. It was supposed to expire and they kept extending the expirations. And it went a number of years 
where the stimulus programs were still in place, which was abnormal. Uh, prior recessions, you have some kind of stimulus would have been smaller in the first place and it would have lasted less time. So, but I thought a lot of people say the problem is we didn't do enough stimulus. Well, I don't know what you should have did, but you... No, the reason, I think a number of people would say, the reason we're lagging behind, we didn't snap back is because the stimulus was too small, was not big enough. It sounds no, to me like you don't agree with that. I don't agree that. with that. And, and finally, the stimulus did expire. And the, the only snapback we've seen in the last 10 years was in those first nine months after it expired. <laughs> that, and, was in, that was in 2014, beginning and, of 2014. Now would, now, would your theory predict that snapback? I mean, did, did it have the effects through the channels you talk about that those disincentives that came in with these additional programs were reduced to some extent when the stimulus expired. I'd say yes. What made it tricky is when the stimulus expired, they were also ramping up a brand new program that's going to last forever. Um, or on the books, it's supposed to last forever, and that's the health reform, which had actually was written by the same people who wrote the stimulus. It has a lot of the same provisions, maybe a little bit different language. Um, health insurance for people who don't work, health insurance for people with low incomes. Um, and that kind of came in and replaced the, the stimulus. So you only had a short period of time there where you had no stimulus and not a full health assistance arrangement. So that that's what you think limited it to that nine-month period? I that, think so, yes. So that was a temporary reprieve in your view of the world from yes. these um, the disincentive effects or the redistribution recession that right. hit. So these changes you talked about, they, even though they came on with the recession, they're still part of the economy today? That we have Under diminished statute. incentives, yes. just like we had during the recession? Under a different statute, in the case of the health law, but some of the same arrangements. And the food stamp is ongoing. They have not gone back to the stamps away from the debit cards. They haven't gone back to saying, you know what, we're going to check your assets as well as your income. Um, so the, the food stamp's been a pretty permanent change. Uh, happened coincident with the recession, but it's it's not uh, going away. Now, under this view of the world, these effects would be much stronger for some groups than others. Um, and I want to ask you a couple things about that. One is, does do the data support that? That do you see these? changes having the effects on the play, in the places where you think they would be the biggest? I mean, is your theory corro corroborated by the evidence on where we see the lingering effects of the recession being the greatest? Is there anything you yeah. point to there? Yeah, I think so. Um, and one thing it says, lower skilled workers would be more effective. Okay. A lot of theories say that lower skilled workers will have a tougher recession. Um, but another variable that the the kind of tax approach points to is whether you're married or not. Because these programs are different uh, for married people and unmarried people, largely because married people have a spouse who could support the family. And so okay. the federal government's not going to support them as much. Um, and that's rather novel. I'm not aware of models of the business cycle that say it hits single people different than married people. Um, and the recession was about twice as deep for unmarried people than for married people. Um, and also the income relationship among single people was different than among married people. So 
that relationship, you say, well, the low-skilled people are going to have the deepest recession. It's actually not really true among married people, it's, it's, but it's true among single people. So, the, you, so what you're saying is, is that the disincentive effects were biggest in the single population just because of the way the rules were structured. And that's where we've seen the biggest impact during the recession. What about the lingering effects? Have the lingering effects been biggest among that group? You know, I, the study I mentioned I did about three, four years ago, so I... Well, that's I already into the lingering period a little I, bit. I, and the data was a year or two old when I got it, so... <laughs> Enough excuses. What do you think? I mean, you, you, so that's something you'd want, you have to go back and check. And the other thing I need to learn about um, is the health care law, how it hits. I know the stimulus, how it hit married versus single. Still learning about how the healthcare law hits married versus single. It's, it's not the same law in that, in that regard. Yeah, well, let me talk about that a little bit because I, I, this is someplace where I think it's important to highlight your research methodology. You mentioned earlier that this wasn't just one program that caused these changes that we saw. It wasn't like, oh, we just did X and let's just go look at X and that, that'll answer the question. You emphasized that it was really a series of programs that each individually might have been small, but because they all pushed in that same direction, collectively had a big effect. But these programs are also not simple. They're, they're filled with all their little nuances of, you know, here's the threshold. If you cross that threshold, you lose this benefit. If you cross a different threshold, you lose a different benefit. And one of the things you did in your research is actually go out and study these programs in some detail to learn about how they actually worked, right? It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Sorry to report that I read the statutes. It's not the... Uh, well, that's good news and bad news. For the people who are relying on your research, that's good that you actually read the statutes. You just, just didn't guess as to what they said. The bad news is that you actually spent the time reading the statutes. That's, that's good news. People who passed them and signed them maybe didn't, but anyway. You think you read it more than the people who signed them. I bet that's true. Um, but anyway, so I, I guess what I'm saying in terms of your research methodology, I'm trying to understand why it wasn't so obvious to everybody who was studying the labor market that this is what happened. And I think part of it is because it required assembling all these different things together and saying, look, you know, you piece all these pieces together, it's pushing pretty strongly in a particular direction. So that's one ingredient, that there was a you know, diverse set of things. That's the most common reaction I've, I've heard experts say, you know, I, I work on poverty, I was familiar with the food stamps. I hadn't thought about that other part. And now that you put the pieces together, things make a little more sense. Okay, so we, we, we put together things that are coming from different parts of policy. Some coming from employment policy, some coming from income policy, healthcare policy, housing policy, we have all these things that are, but maybe not even surprisingly, because they're responding to the same series of precipitating events, all end up pushing us in one direction. Right. So that's part of it. Step two, quantitatively, these things add up to something significant. You mentioned earlier, it's like raising the income tax rate by eight percentage points. But for certain people, these effects are even much bigger than that, right? I mean, you've uncovered cases where the disincentive effects are enormous, right? Yeah, there's eight percentage points is an average, um, and there's a lot of variation around the average. 
I found it from the stimulus, put about 4 million people in perspective, the labor market's bit more than 100 million people. So 4 million people um, were put by the stimulus in a situation where they could earn more not working than working. Have more so to they spend. had to pay to work. They would, yeah, they ha- their family would have to, if they took a job, their family would have to dig in their pocket and cut their standard of living in order to take that job. Yeah, so in other words, the, the benefit of working was you'd have less income. Yes. It seems like a pretty strong disincentive. Yeah. Um, now that wasn't everybody, but that's four million people. That's a lot of people. It's a small fraction. On the other hand, compared to the amount that employment went down, it's it's pretty big. Employment went down maybe on the order of ten million. So that's that's quite a few. That's already forty percent of the total. Yes. Yeah. So that that and you know my guess is a lot of those people weren't working. <laughs> I, that would be my prediction as an economist. I yeah. would assume that's what the data would say as well. But so anyway, so no, again, back to where we were. You put together all these programs, you find added together, they all go the same direction. Quantitatively, they add up to a lot. And for certain individuals, add up to a whole lot. You then say, thinking about the labor market, not just as, you know, who hits income from where, but actually what people's incentives are. And incentives matter because it's gonna determine the rate at which you find a job, how hard you keep the job, your employer's incentive to pay you enough to keep you around versus push you off to the unemployment rolls. So incentives are operating in numerous ways. And another aspect is that there are lots of dimensions on people which people can respond. So. If they do a little bit of this, they do a little less hard looking for work, a little less staying on a job that they would have otherwise had. Maybe they're less likely to get up and move from location A to location B to find a job. I mean, again, each one of those may be small, but what you're telling me is add them all together and that's not small. It's medium size in some sense. Remember I said this recession may be twice as deep, so that means maybe labor market shrank to 92% instead of 95% it would have been. So you're talking like 3%, 97% of the work that would have happened, happened anyway, despite these disincentives. Right, but we're talking about Not an economy that's like 10% behind, 10 percentage points behind where, quote, it ought to be in some sense that people need to talk about. On the scale of recessions, this is a lot. Right, so you're saying if, 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 if these policies pushed us down three or four percentage points, that's a big fraction of what we saw. Yes. Made the recession deeper, but even more so made it last longer. Yes. And one thing that struck me in what you told the story is these changes aren't haven't gone away. They're not they weren't temporary. They're still there. Well, are their effects going to go away though? I mean, what how does this kind of thing work as an economist? If you change the system and make it so it's less attractive to stay, get a job or maintain a job, more attractive to be in the other state. Is that effect going to just naturally wane as people get adjusted to the new system? No. Okay. If, if you have a permanent new approach to the labor market, you're going to have a permanently different labor market. If anything, it might get bigger as people adjust more and more to the situation that's at hand. Good. No uh, reason to believe it gets smaller. Well, there's, it depends how you measure. Um, there's a little more bad news, I'm afraid. Um, 
the health law, more so to the, than to the stimulus, treats different activities in the economy differently. Part-time versus full-time, large versus small. Okay. Offering health insurance, not offering health insurance, having skilled people, not having skilled people. These are all treated differently. And businesses and people are kind of reallocating themselves in a direction where Obamacare caused them the least damage. Not so the, again, what you would say before, as an economist, you would say, all right, I go out there and I subsidize this activity, I tax that activity. You shouldn't be surprised when you see people moving toward the subsidized activity and moving away from the taxed activity. Yes. And maybe that subsidy is a great idea. Maybe that tax is a great idea. Great idea, bad idea, consequences are still going to happen. Consequences don't say, well, this was a good idea, so we're, we're not going to have any response. I mean, responses are part of the system. Is that It's part of the system, but I think a lot of these don't make sense in terms of these shifts in terms of creating value for the customer. Um, when you say are, the customer, what do you mean? The businesses and the workers, they're, they're serving some ultimate customer. Um, I, I think give an example in the, my healthcare book of the, the coffee industry. You have Starbucks is like a corporate coffee place. You have Dunkin' Donuts is like franchise and you have independent places. Obamacare treats them all different. And the market share is gonna shift between these two because of Obamacare, not because one I'm provides better. So how does, how does Obamacare affect Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, and Kevin's Coffee. How, how does it affect them? Do we know? Oh, oh yeah. There's um, there's one set of rules that apply to companies that are already offering health insurance. That would be like Starbucks. Okay. Um, and they're a big company. Um, and they're not going to be a small company anytime soon. Right. Um, and then there's your Dunkin' Donuts, which tend to be run on a franchise basis. So they have more than one shop, but... Altogether, they might only have 40 employees, 70 employees, something like that. Um, and Obamacare creates a real hard hit when you cross the 50 employee threshold. So the incentive to grow is? A number of Dunkin' Donuts aren't going to grow because they know it's too costly to grow. Um, and some may think about shrinking. Um, and then Kevin's Coffee's only got one shop, probably don't have 50 employees. So you got another set of rules that, that apply to you. Um, and so these, these different parts of the coffee market will grow. In, and this is true in all industries, yeah, but, but I'm, I'm describing coffee. Kevin's Coffee says, well, I, I might have been thinking about offering health insurance. I'm going to send my people out to the exchange. Now, once I've sent my people out to the exchange, that changes the cost and benefits to me of laying people off. And, yeah. and that's another realistic part that we have to take into account. Yeah. All these policy changes have consequences. And let's go back to what you said before, because I think this is something that people often don't see. Economists sort of think this way naturally, which is, let's assume I provide a benefit to every employer who has less than 50 employees. You say, look, I haven't taxed anybody. I've just given a benefit. Assume this was paid for by my rich uncle. So we didn't even forget about where we got the money from, yes. right? I went out. And I said, I'm going to give this great benefit to all employers who have less than 50 employees. So it's a, it's no taxes anywhere to be found. But Casey Mulligan finds a tax in that place. And I, 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 do how, see, I do see a tax. And then it's, it's hiring that 50th employee. You have to kiss away your benefits for all the other 49 in order to bring him on the payroll. And 
you're not going to bring them on the payroll. You're not going to go. In other words, I'm getting $100 per employee per month for every employee. So I'm getting $4,900 for those 49 employees. If I hire that 50th employees, I got to give that $4,900 back to the government. Plus, I got to pay that guy's salary. <laughs> Plus, I got to pay. But in addition to hiring him, I have a $4,900 tax that I have to pay for hiring him, which is I give up every month the benefit. So if, it, if I was going to pay that guy $2,000 a month, okay, he was a relatively low-paid employee. I was going to pay him $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year. Suddenly, that guy's cost is $6,900 a month. Yes, He's costing me more than triple what he would have cost to hire. And therefore, I'm probably not gonna hire that guy. Right. And this is a world with no taxes. I know with the money, manna from heaven was paying the $4,900. No politician would call that arrangement in the tax. Nobody would call that a tax. No, but it doesn't matter what you would call it. It has that effect. It doesn't have that effect because you chose to call it a tax. It has that effect because I've provided a benefit to somebody that goes away if they hire that 50th employee. And that's a consequence of having a program designed the way that program was designed. Now, of course, to pay that $4,900 subsidy to the people who are working at this guy's coffee shop, I got to raise that money somewhere. And so I probably actually have to have an actual tax, something that we would recognize as a tax, to pay that bill. And that's an additional disincentive. Yes. So we're creating a disincentive when we raise the money and we're creating a disincentive when I spend the money. Given that you're spending it that way. Given how you're spending it. When I spent it on the tank, you could say I'm creating a disincentive to work among the people I'm taxing to pay for the tank, but I'm creating an incentive to work for tank makers. For tank makers. Yes. And so you're saying the kind of stimulus we had, and not just the stimulus, the kind of expansion in programs we've seen have tended to be of that type. The type that even though they come across as benefits, have the net effect of reducing the incentive of an employer to expand employment or the incentive of someone to move from, say, not working to working. In the case of people moving from not working to working, you said it's been so severe in some cases that people actually would end up with less money if they worked than if they didn't work. What we call in economics an implicit tax rate above 100%. And this isn't like soaking the rich here. The guys who face this implicit tax rate above 100%, where would they fall? Is this Bill Gates? You know, under the stimulus, no, it's not Bill <laughs> Gates. Uh, under the stimulus, it would have been uh, relatively low-skilled workers. Uh, I mean, skilled enough that they tend to work normally, but relatively low-skilled workers. These would be relatively low-income households. So one thing that comes out of this approach is to say that the effects of policy in terms of affecting people's behavior is not limited to just taxing the rich or taxing high-income households. 
These are all people who are probably off the federal income tax rolls by and large, right? 50% of the people in the country don't pay any federal income tax. Doesn't mean they're still not subject to these kinds of incentive effects that you're talking about. In fact, that's probably the population where you see some of the highest effective marginal tax rates. If you look at it in terms of the net gain in income from expanding my work effort. So if I was to learn something from this recent round of research of Casey about the economy is think about the world in terms of the benefits to workers and employers of increasing the size of employment, of working more as a worker or hiring more people as an employer. And that change in incentives has been in the direction of discouraging work. It's been large enough that it has had an impact and it helps explain why the recession was so deep and it helps explain why it's lasted so so long. And why we're we're not going to recover. And why it's not just a recession. It's a permanent effect because these are permanent changes to the structure of the labor market. Is that... A fair, it's fair yes. assessment. Is this message getting out to people? Or is this a message something that we're getting a lot of people saying, you know, God, Casey, I hadn't thought of it that way, but now that you mention it, I guess you're right. What people are we talking about? <laughs> Anybody. Give me, you know, I mean. I mean, I think the Federal Reserve ignores it. Um, I'm not sure why, but they they think something like the federal fund rate, Fed funds rate, the, the rate that's charged in overnight loans between large banks is more important for determining how many people work than actually the incentives that the yeah. workers face on a daily basis. So if, if, if you were to sit down with somebody who doesn't, who has a different theory for what's going on out there in the economy, and you went through your argument, and you said, okay, let's re- sit down and we'll both read the statutes would they read the statutes differently than you, you think? No. I'm sorry, no. where are you guys going to part ways? Then they would you do your quantification of totaling these things up and say, wow, these things add up to something I would think would have an effect. Would they disagree at that point? No, I don't think they would disagree. They, okay, where, some may, some of them where wonder, do they fall off the some bus? Of, some of them may wonder, you know, if I went and added up myself, would I get the same answer? And they didn't do it, so we don't know. No, but I'm saying you, your speculation would be if I sat down with these people and I explained that up that far in the argument, they would pretty much, there might be quibbles here and there, but first approximation, they'd say, okay, you're right. Next stage is, well, and the impact of that on behavior is going to be what Casey says it is. Is that, do you think, where they would... Or are they just ignoring this whole way of thinking? They're just not coming at the problem from this perspective? Or is there specific things they would disagree with? At this perspective, uh, very few models of recession have any kind of taxes in it. Any kind of incentives in it? Yeah, in the labor market. In the labor market. There are financial incentives in the models, but labor incentives aren't there. It's all about investment and demand and all those things. But um, Trading treasury bills and overnight loans. So what's interesting is a lot of people would take away from the financial crisis that all the research ought to be about understanding financial markets better. 
and understanding things like we just talked about. I think what Casey's saying is, well, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. That you not only should think about those, but think about the other markets that really we know always are an important part of a recession. It's hard to think of a recession where the labor market wasn't, in some sense, where the ultimate action took place, right? I mean, a recession is almost defined by a fall in employment or a rise in unemployment, however you want to put it. Those two things are part of almost every recession we've ever thought about. Um, but what you're saying is not just the impact or the results is in the, is in the labor market, but the mechanisms by which this happened are in the labor market. Yeah, or a mechanism by which half of it happened. Or, or half of it happened. Something like that. In a fair amount of the persistence in the sluggish recovery is 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 in the labor market but it's not the intrinsic parts of the labor market it's related to some of the policy responses that we had yes and that's the other side of the message so it's not just you should be thinking about the world in terms of incentives and and how incentives are affected it's not just you should be looking at the world in terms of what happened in the labor market but it's another message you should think about the actual ultimate impact of policy responses, of what our policy responses have done. Um, now, I know a favorite term of Gary's when he used to talk about policy and things was unintended consequences, that when you thought about policies and said these policies, let's say your example, is the policies were designed to cushion the fall, well, there are consequences that happen because of you have those policies. You're not necessarily saying, though, you shouldn't have done those policies, but you shouldn't do those policies, then be surprised that they have the effects that they're going to have. Yeah, that commander from the Coast Guard is a good model for us. She, she wants to rescue people, but, and she understands to do her job well. She has to understand that in doing so, people won't take as much care of themselves. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's but it's even more basic than that. It's like if you do something, it's going to have effects, and you shouldn't be surprised when it has the effects it's going. You think it's going to have. So we shouldn't be surprised is what we got at what we got. Is that? I I agree. There's we got that. what we 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 kind of by design. If I had to come to you ten years ago and say I'm going to add eight points on the rate of taxation of work. Where's the labor market going to be? I don't know that you would have given me much yeah, particularly than you, where we are now. Particularly if you told me you were going to do it very in a very extreme fashion for some fraction, particularly among the low-skilled population for whom the responses are likely to be the most extreme and who, you know, you haven't added other forces. The market forces aren't doing so well for a lot of people in those categories either. So you put the reduced incentive on top of a market that was already turning against low-skilled workers more generally, it seems to me that's yes. part of the equation. And uh, any prospect that policies are going to change anytime soon, do you think? Do you think that this is going to have an impact, that people are going to say, wow, this has really had an effect above and beyond what we thought? No, I kind of think back to what we viewed as a puzzle 10 years ago, which is, why is America's policies different than Europe's? Europe tended to reward work less. And, and they got less work as a result. And they result. got less work. And the puzzle is, why is America an outlier from that? Well, we're not an outlier anymore. Um, 
kind of the puzzle's been solved. So I, I would view it a little bit strange if we were to go back to being an outlier again. So we've become less of an outlier. Yes. We've, we've become more like Europe. Now, we've become more like Europe, but more subtle, in more subtle ways, right? I mean, Europe, if I wanted to look at taxation and say, well, geez, how much of a tax is there on work? In many countries, I could go and say, look, if I work, my employer has to pay 30% payroll tax. And then I got to pay 25% income tax. And then when I go to the store, I got to pay a 20% VAT tax. And I lose subsidized childcare and all kinds of other things that come. And heck, at the end of the day, the net tax rate, I know when people did it for Sweden was you know 90% or something like that. And not surprisingly, people were working a lot less when they were only netting 10 cents on the dollar. That's not so easy to do in the United States because most of these tax, quote, taxes you're talking about don't take that form. They don't take the form of a VAT tax and a payroll tax and an income tax. They're, 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 they're more of this foregone benefit type. The more I earn, the less benefits I get or more, more of the benefits I have to pay for out of pocket. Or even without earning more, the more that you work. The more that you work. The more you have to support yourself. Um, and that, that, that's a big difference. It, even, take this to the narrow area of healthcare. Most of the European countries will have an earmarked payroll tax for the healthcare for everybody, not just the elderly. Yeah, so everybody's gonna get the subsidized healthcare across the board. And so they don't take that away from you as you work or take that away from you as you earn more. And therefore, while they may be still taxing people to pay for that benefit, go back to my earlier example, the $4,900, they, they still have to raise the $4,900, but it doesn't have the effect of discouraging you from hiring that additional worker or the effect of discouraging somebody from taking a job that would cause them to lose some other benefits. Right. So they may tax more directly, but they might spend it in a way that has less distortionary effects. Yes, that's, that's been the pattern. And interestingly, that the, the uh, extra taxes that we had in our health care, ours is more hidden, but it's about the same number as the Europeans. It's about five points or so. And that's tend to be the, the payroll tax that the Europeans have to, to pay for their universal care uh, programs. Yeah. Now... What's your view? I know you've done research on tax policy and other things more generally. Is what's the political economy side of of doing this programs the way we do it here? I mean, would there be more resistance if this was an out and out payroll tax as opposed to kind of hidden the way it is? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I mean, the basics is not a surprise that we have it in one form or another and try to figure out which form it comes in is a lot tougher. Especially given, I got to acknowledge the puzzle we had before. I'm not sure why we were different from the Europeans in the first place. Um, but you see a problem. lot of resistance. I mean, if people had come out and said, let's just raise the income tax that, that amount, it, it had would have had to have been thought of differently and seen somewhat different politically than the way it was actually put forward. You're probably right. You're just getting an amateur area for me, that's all. Okay. 
But uh, I mean, because you don't. But ultimately, don't you want to explain why it showed up the way it did, or you don't oh, think? I, I, ultimately, I want to. I mean, Gary always asks those questions. You know, why do we have these policies? Why are we different than Europe? And if we become like them, why? Why did it happen in the early 21st century and not 40 years before? I, those are questions the social scientists ought to be able to answer. I can't answer them all now, though. Now, one thing that's been going on in the background here, of course, and this really predates the 2007 recession, was an enormous rise in inequality within the country before this, and gap in wages for between skilled workers and less skilled workers, or between highly educated and less educated had been expanding. To what extent do you think these kind of policy shifts are related to that? Is there any evidence that you would it's, point it's to? It's tempting to say, you get more inequality, you get more redistribution. That actually fits too good. Because <laughs> um, the Europeans, Western Europeans had less inequality and more redistribution. If you look at the grand scheme of history, it kind of doesn't go in the right direction. But we do have a lot of models that say that. And so yeah. finally the models work. <laughs> um, we had the inequality go up and then redistribution follow on with that. And there seems to be a lot of pressure for further redistribution today. And if we go in that direction, which I'm not saying we necessarily will, do you see that as further adding to this disincentive picture? Do you think it'll be done in a way that, I mean, are there ways to do that that don't have the same adverse consequences or less adverse consequences in the way of, Incentives. So you could clean up around the edges, but fundamentally, if you're not going to let the successful working people have more, then you're going to be disincentivizing success and work. So you're saying if I cushion your fall, the benefit of coming back from your fall is going to be smaller. Yes. It just and protecting if, yourself against falls will be less, and you name it. It's it, that's like a natural consequence of. If this is what you get when you're not working and this is what you get when you're working, if I want to raise this and push this down, the gap between them, there's no way to raise this and lower this. Well, you, you want to raise this. Well, if you're going to raise that, it has to come from somewhere. You push this down. And there's no way to raise this and lower this without reducing the gap. That seems like arithmetic. I, I <laughs> figured out a way to do it. Um, I'm always asked to volunteer a method, but there's no method that I But know. that doesn't mean you still can't improve policies, right? There's a lot of distortions that make no sense, right? You've distorted things on margins that you would say, well, geez, that one doesn't seem to make any sense. Are there ones you'd point to yeah, there? Yeah, when you get to like these 4 million people who could earn more not working than working, that doesn't make sense. Now you're actually, you've, you've raised it the opposite way, that the guy you're letting have more is the guy who does less. Um, and it seems like you could get more equality by at least letting him get the same. Right, and, and there's no real reason you'd even want to go that far. So you're saying, when I design these programs, or maybe it makes more sense to have programs that aren't so means-tested, that, that follow more the European model, maybe have more explicit taxation and less claw back. I mean, or at least when you claw it back, try to think sensibly about how you ought to claw it back and on what margins you ought to claw it back. I mean, it seems to me there's lots of ways you could think about to improve these programs, but I agree with you that 
fundamentally, if the goal of what you're trying to do is make it less attractive to be here and more attractive to be here, you're going to make it less attractive to move from one to the other. And a lot of what you're saying is we just have to recognize that's kind of what we've done. And some people might say, well, geez, it was so important. We needed to do it. Let's do it. But then don't be surprised when you when it happens. Right. There were plenty of folks who used to say the European way is better than our way and we should do it that way. Fine. But we're going to look more European if we act more European. That's pretty clear. And uh, well, you, you've been here at Chicago for a long time. You, you were a student here and you're on the faculty here, kind of, you and I have that in common. Um, what do you, how do you, you consider yourself a Chicago economist? Loaded oh, yeah. question. No other kind. There's no other kind. So everybody's a Chicago no, no, economist. No, for me. For no you. Other kind. So what makes you, what makes a Chicago economist in your mind? What, what is the distinguishing feature of Chicago economics from your point of view? If there is one, you don't have there to put prob- everybody prob- in that bucket. There probably are a, a few, but um, you know the legacy from from Viner to Friedman to Gary to Murphy. I think that training. I mean, I think you saw it when you saw policy discussions around the recession. The Chicago group was very different. Very little overlap that the Chicago trained people had to say versus those in our profession who were trained elsewhere. Um, you know, the Chicago graduates were not at all quick to say the stimulus actually stimulates. They wanted to know what the microeconomic details are, because I think that's what we learn here. So, yeah. So, again, you talked to when we started about supply and demand. And I think economy, every economist learns supply and demand. I think what differs across economists is how much of a central role it plays in their analysis, whether that's something that's just a small part of what you do or or is it kind of where you start you sort of say okay i got to think about this in terms of economics and for me economics is essentially supply and demand which is comes down to benefits and costs how has this changed the benefits of certain actions and the cost of those actions and and then how does that play out in the market you know an equilibrium out there with employers and and, and workers and you know, it's it's kind of practicing what we preach, I think, in some sense. Always going back and checking our results against the under. We actually think it works. But we've also seen it work over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, but I, so it's it's not a difference in terms of Chicago has this secret ingredient that nobody else has. It's It's an ingredient that everybody has. It's just... How often you use it, I think, is the is the difference. And and how much you rely on that as your core. There's something about being exposed to it here with those characters I mentioned. Uh, they were good at explaining it and making understand how important it is. I think that's the key. I think the last thing you said is really the important is the, the thing that always struck me is the way people could explain how this was a great way to understand so many things about the world. And having seen it work so many times in the past, it became natural that that's what you turned to when you had something new to deal with. And so when you saw this 
you know, a whole, whole new world that happened with the 2007 recession that suddenly all the old economics didn't work anymore and it was all a new economics because this was a financial crisis, not a employment crisis. And because the roots were in the financial sector, we needed all these new models. I think the answer you've come to is no. If you look and look correctly at the places we've looked in the past using the tools we've used in the past, this is not a mystery. Another mystery solved by the same old investigative well, most agency. Most of it's not a mystery. There's yeah, there's still mysteries learn. out there. There's but, always more to learn. But, but you don't want to say that the whole thing's a mystery. That, you know, a lot of it is we got, we reaped what we sowed. And what's interesting to me is a lot of what we sowed was sowed with a very different message, right? That most people would say, you're sort of saying the stimulus was anything but, for lack of a better way of putting it. I thought it about stimulated the, recession. I, I thought about it. The title of the book I thought about using was automatic destabilizers. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I might have called the stimulus. I see. The economy goes de-stimulus. down. The <laughs> destabilizer. The economy goes down, and so you put in policies to make it go down some more. Wow. That's an interesting thought. But even if you thought they were good policies because they helped cushion the fall for some people, they're going to have that effect, again, is what I would say is the key message. It doesn't, somebody could read your book and say, yep, it made the recession deeper, but I, you know, I really think we needed to do the things we did for other reasons. But don't say you did it to make the recession less steep because that's not the effect it's going to ultimately have. Is that? That's why I didn't go with that first title as a judgment attached to it. Whereas redistribution means to Robin Hood it was good, to Robin Hood's opponents it was bad. It, it, there's room for that judgment whether you like redistribution or not. But we know what it does. It makes the favored group grow and the disfavored group shrink. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a consequence that's going to happen. And I think the other side of it that I would take away from what you talked about earlier is that you don't want to view each of these policies in isolation. That particularly when you're instituting a series of policies that all are pushing in the same direction, the ultimate impact you get might be, might be quite large. And Yeah, and, and you don't have to because the supply and demand framework say, hey, there's a common thread here. There's common units we can measure them in. Um, there's really not a necessity to have to do 50 independent studies and then sew them together later. There's, you can start with a common thread from the first approach to it. Okay. Well, anything we've missed that you were just dying to talk about? Where do you go next in your in your research? What do you want to? Where's you? Where you? Where's the? Where's Casey on, Mulligan going to show up? We're again? working on price controls. Okay. Um, we have a lot of price controls in our economy, and the parts of our economy that have more price controls are growing. Um, so I think maybe the past for Cuba, but maybe more the future for us. So I want to learn more about those. So more, more, more about how price controls work. You abandoning supply and demand in that analysis? Somehow I doubt it. <laughs> no. No. Same old, same tools, new problem. Yes. Okay. So how long is it going to be before we can sit down and talk about that? 
soon as you know, are. You never know with research. All right. Anyway, well, thank you, Casey. It's been a pleasure talking yes, with you welcome. today. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.